Welcome to Typically Hazardous. This is Hank Fortner, and I am your host. And today is an exceptional podcast. This is an interview about a subject that every single one of us is dealing with or faces every single day of our lives. This is a conversation around stress and fear from one of the leading clinical psychologists in the country. His name is Dr. Robert Maurer and has written a series of books. His latest is called Mastering Fear. In this podcast, we're going to discuss the voice inside our head that interprets experiences. We're going to discuss that stress and anxiety as we know it does not actually exist. We're going to discuss the origins of what we understand as stress and anxiety and how even in the spiritual context of our lives, what practices we can bring about to actually master our fear. So listen to this podcast. And as you go through, you'll sort of pick up different things that are for different people. Pass them on to people that need this. This is truthfully one of those episodes that I'm so glad to deliver, and I could not be more excited. I literally recorded this yesterday, and we're getting it to you today because I want to make sure that this is available to anyone who might have stress or fear or anxiety as a part of their life. Enjoy. You ever wonder what your life would be like? What will you wish you would have done? after it already. What's life without a little adventure? We get one chance. Best live a big life. The exploration of the unknown. A hope for something more. This behavior can be classified as typically hazardous. I call it an adventure. Welcome. Let's get started, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Typically Hazardous, and I am exceedingly excited to have this conversation. I'm sitting here in Santa Monica with Dr. Robert Maurer, and he is a guy, he's written a number of books, which I have on my desk right now, but the way that the Maurer and I know each other is I read his book from a friend who was coaching me and said, you got to read this book. The book that I read of his is called One Small Step Can Change Your Life, and I started reading a couple of pages of it and I thought I need the audiobook so I listened to the audiobook and I sat in my car for 4 hours until I got halfway through this thing because I just thought this is exactly what I need this is what I need for my life so I emailed Robert Mauer off of his website and now here we are having this conversation Mauer thank you so much it's a privilege to talk with you yeah I'm so grateful I think my email to you was almost a little too fanboy it was like where have you been all my life I mean yes it certainly I, got my attention yeah right I was like I was you were my Justin Bieber I was like what I I, I need uh, some more Mauer in my life so now I'm sitting with a stack of books and I've got some really cool I think that's the first time in my life I've been quoted in the same sentence with Justin Bieber so thank you <laughs> oh, probably not your last time I, guys you need to check out Robert Mauer and quote him next to Bieber we'll get we need to introduce you to Bieber because I think you could have a huge impact <laughs> on his life I love your work uh, M Dr. Maurer before we get into some stuff because again we've got a really cool roadmap of a of a of an interview to do uh, tell us a little bit about you and a little bit about where you live and some of your what you do today. I'm a clinical psychologist and work at uh, University of Washington's medical school campus in Spokane, Washington, three days a week training family practice physicians who are in three years of training to become family physicians in communication skills and counseling skills. And then I have a very unusual life where I fly down Monday night, work all day Tuesday, doing the exact same thing for UCLA's family medicine residency and then fly back Tuesday night if I'm not flying somewhere to give talks. 
Wow, that's cool. So you're like a, you're bi-coastal, but it's the same coast. Same coast, yes. <laughs> back and forth. So is this is this a, this office we're in? Do you live down here like one night a week, one day a week? Exactly. Okay. I was with UCLA full time for about twenty years. Cool. So this was my home, and now it's a, a place I get to put my head on a pillow one night a week, and occasionally see a private client here. That's great, and you get to escape from the rain. The rainy snow mostly. Yeah. <laughs> snow. Okay, that's good. You get. I, I, I'll take. I think most people listening would take a day in Santa Monica a week. Yes. In life, yes. that sounds. That sounds like a deal. Yes. Have they? Has UCLA gotten you a jet yet, or are you still commercialing? They make me fly commercial. Oh, that's not have cool. Other uses for the taxpayers. <laughs> okay, good. That's good. And uh, how old are you? I am seventy years old. Wow, it's awesome. You and Donald Trump are the same age right now. Again, Justin Bieber, I'm compared <laughs> to and Donald Trump. Yeah. This interview is going uh, in a different direction. That probably says more <laughs> about me than it does about you, unfortunately. Uh, and so you're seventy. How long have you been practicing psychology then? Uh, geez, I've lost track. I have my PhD when I was twenty-six. So wow, a long, long time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you've got you've got a wealth of wisdom in that. I well, hope so. We're gonna tap into that. We're gonna tap into that Donald Trump, Justin Bieber, <laughs> the Donald <laughs> Trump age, Justin Bieber, cool uh, <laughs> wisdom here. You wrote a book that I want to have a, that I want to talk to you about today. That you, I actually first heard of you talk about this subject in the audiobook of your book. And I've probably re-listened to that section three or four times. Uh, most people who are listening know me as a person. I've studied stress in, immensely with, for myself as a person. I live in um, on a quest for courage as a human being. And I have wrestled with just like fearful thinking. And I had a thought today where I thought I, I struggle with constantly going towards worst case scenario. So when an opportunity is in front of me, I go, here's three worst case scenarios yes. <laughs> that could happen. And, you know, the thought I had this morning, because I have a really cool opportunity right now in my life, and I'm thinking through all the worst case scenarios, and the thought I had this morning by myself over a salad was, uh, none of my worst case scenarios have ever happened. Uh And that echoed for me what I learned through your study and through your listening, which you have this book called Mastering Fear, where you thesis that stress as we understand it doesn't exist. Exactly. Can you unpack that for us? Because for me personally, it feels very liberating that there's a possibility that (laughs) this thing that I've been feeling for a long time is not only not necessary, but may actually be a product of my own own making and not a natural tax of being human. Yes. What what always troubled me was that the word stress sat around in the science of physics and metallurgy, the twisting of metals, for 500 years bothering nobody until 1936 when it became a medical disorder. Since Hmm. 1936, we've cured polio, tuberculosis, made progress with every single cancer. But I don't know anybody that thinks we have had breakthroughs with stress. And so when... If anything, people would assume that we've gotten more stressful since 1936 and found ways to stress ourselves out Exactly. In spite of 50, 60, 70 years of research, most people think stress is getting worse. And, but uh, to back up for a minute, most of my research, or really collecting of research, is collecting long-term studies where they follow people often from birth. One study till they were 45 years old. Another study followed people from birth till 70 or 80 years old. Wow. Another study followed people from sophomores at Harvard for 70 years. Wow. All these studies had the same question in mind, and it's the question that I struggled with wanting to train physicians, and that is, 
what skills allow people to succeed in their jobs, their health, and relationship? Because hmm. almost every best-selling book on success you pick up tells you how to succeed in your jobs or your health or right. your relationship. Right. Some, <laughs> sometimes at the cost of the other, right? Exactly like, right. Yeah. And everybody knows somebody that has success in one area, but you would, for example, their careers are thriving, but you wouldn't want their personal life you know, at gunpoint. So what allows people to succeed in spite of adversities and setbacks and obstacles over the course of time in health, relationship, and work? So we found both close to two dozen studies that did that. And when I looked at some of the interviews, I found rarely did these people use the word stress. Hmm. In fact, one of my heroes is the man that started Pixar, a man named Ed Catmull, mm -hmm. PhD in computer science, had the dream to make animated movies out of uh, from computers. A brilliant man who's put together extraordinary films for, for human uh, entertainment. And he wrote a book last year, Hank, called Creativity Incorporated. And it's not, it does, there's not a line of script in the book because he's a PhD computer scientist. He, does, he doesn't write movies, but he knows how to manage people. Hmm. And in this book, the whole book is about how do you get creative people to give each other critical feedback, push themselves and each other to greatness. Now, I counted how many times he used the word stress, how many times he used the word anxiety. He used those words, each of them once in the book. The word that showed up instead, literally 87 times, was the word fear. Wow. And, one, and I, for a long time, and this was typical of what we saw in these interviews with successful people, they would talk about being afraid or talk about being scared. And for months and months, I couldn't figure out why would these people prefer the word fear to stress until one day, as I said, following one of our doctors through a half day of their her clinic, Standing in the exam room, watching her interact with client with patients, I realized when adults like you and I go to a doctor and talk about emotional pain, we talk about being stressed, anxious, depressed, nervous, tense. But in family medicine, we see people through the whole life cycle. I never heard a child use those words. Hmm. I never heard a child say they were anxious or stressed about <laughs> the boogeyman. Yeah, right. My four-year-old does not use the word anxious. Exactly. doesn't even know what that means. Or say they're depressed because the class is going on a field trip and they have to go in the hospital for a surgery. Children talk about being scared, afraid, and sad. Mm -hmm. So what occurred to us all of a sudden was that successful adults realize that when you're doing something important, fear shows up, that it's a natural part of life. If you think about it, what kind of movies do kids stand in line all summer to see? Yeah. Blair Scary Witch movies, and right. Scare. And right. The number one movie last summer saw. was Jurassic Park. Right. Children know they live in a world of fear. They can't control if their parents are in a good mood or bad, if the teachers are going to be nice or mean. So since they have to engage fear, they might as well have some fun doing it with mm. a tub of popcorn. By the time we become adulterated, fear is no longer seen as a normal part of life, but something we get angry at for showing up. And we hmm. either depress it, literally, we get angry at it, or we start using food or alcohol or some other substance to try to calm that part of the brain where fear lives. Instead of having a healthy relationship to this powerful gift that God gave us to protect us from getting in too much trouble. Wow. Wow. So in, in, this, in essence, what, when we say stress, anxiety, tension, nervousness or whatever those phrases are, what are we actually doing? We're actually feeling fear and we're just nicknaming it? Or what? Or is that, is, that our, uh, is stress and anxiety in these kind of phrases, is that a form of us depressing fear? Well, it's a, it's a good question and the answer is a little complicated. On the one hand, 
when we're calling it a stress, we're saying that this feeling we're having isn't normal and healthy. We're calling it a disease. Oh, wow. The, the, other the, the, the twisting of the metal you mentioned right. earlier. It so feels like something's twisting me or pressurizing exactly. me. Exactly. By calling it stress or anxiety, we're saying this shouldn't be here. This is a disease. How do I get rid of it instead of seeing fear as something that's an alarm system in the body alerting me that something important's happening? Okay. You know, if I was to ask you, if you would like to leave this interview, Hank, and never be afraid again, you might be tempted to take me up on it. Because you, me, everybody I know has times when fear seemed to get in our way. Yes. I'll try to convince you it's not fear that got in our way, but our relationship to the fear. If we could eliminate fear so you'd never feel it again, the odds are you might not even make it home today to Hollywood because why would you ever stop at a red light again? Yeah, right. <laughs> so fear was designed <laughs> to protect us. Yes. So that's um, one of the reasons why it's difficult. So what we think is happening in anxiety is people are afraid of being afraid, which turns the volume up on fear, overwhelming the brain. Okay, wow. And that what we are, again, a, a very simplistic explanation for depression, not in any way complete, is that we are literally depressing something we're afraid to deal with. Wow. Which would be like considered, and even David Letterman refers to this a little bit in an, in an interview I've heard, is like an anxious depression. Yes. Where you're actually holding back all of these worst case scenarios or this anxiety and it actually puts you in a depressive state. Yes. Even though you're anxious and you're moving fast. You're, he, he described himself as busy and anxious and also depressed at the same time. Not like can't get out of bed depressed, right. but depressed with his, with his activities. Right. Is that sort of the clashing of those two yes. moments? I'm feeling fear and I'm pressing it down. So what you're helping us do and what you're helping people do is... Um, or inviting us to consider is is reshaping our relationship to fear. Yes. And approaching it in a different way. So when I'm feeling, let's say I'm feeling stress, that my wife is mad at me, which happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm good at that. So when I'm when if my wife is mad at me and I'm feeling stress about that, like ah yeah. oh, geez, whatever. What I should actually do is identify that as fear. Right. The spiritual literature has talked about fear for thousands of years. For sure. And they say there's only two human fears other than the fear of survival. One is the fear of not being worthwhile or lovable, mm -hmm. which may get triggered if someone we love is uh, angry at us. Got it. And the other fear is of losing control, which we tend to equate with health or finance. Huh. Now, there's another reason to back up for a minute why... Uh, calling it stress is a, not necessarily s of service to us. Because if you read the original book on stress by a physician named Hans Selye, if he saw what we had done with his concept, he would probably have left it buried in metallurgy. Wow. Because what he said is that stress is not your job. It's not the freeway. It's not some difficult neighbor that's making your life difficult or a lousy boss. Those are stressors. Hmm. Stress is the body's inability to deal with those stressors effectively. Hmm. And so what we've done by calling it stress and misusing his concept is we now think if only my boss treated me better or my wife was yeah, more understanding right. or the freeway was better or I had <laughs> yeah. more money, yeah. then I'd be happy. And we're trying to bend the world around our own exactly. fears. Wow. Okay. So when my wife is, so walk me through that scenario. Sure. My wife is mad at me. My actual fear is a thing like I'm not lovable or she doesn't love me or I'm right. not good enough as a husband. Yes. And what do I do with that? Because when I feel stress, I get really, I get on my best behavior. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. I go straight to like, hey, maybe I should do the dishes or clean the house. Or maybe exactly. we should all go buy things for yes. you. Like w when that occurs, I, what, what do I do with that fear when I'm holding it? How would I master that? Or how would I 
change my relationship to that? Well, there's three answers to it. One is the one that you do, and that is whether we call it fear or stress, you recognize that you're not happy with the circumstance. Yes. And you try to, going back to that second fear of losing control, you try to get control back in the uh, relationship yeah. by by being a good husband yes. and hoping that she'll recognize that and let go of whatever So that I can shackle her again. I can get control. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in control. Yes. Well, again, if you think about it, one reason why our relationships are scary for us, here's this human being you've committed your life to, right. you've, you've created a child with, and uh, when you go home at night, what guarantee do you have that she's still going to love you, that yeah, she's right. going to be in a good mood, that she's going to be yeah. devoted? We have little control over our relationships. Now, most of the time, that fear is pretty quiet because our relationships are thriving and we're doing well. But when you've done something to upset her, particularly if it's something you didn't even realize you were doing. Oh, yeah. That happens all the time. I mean, a lot of it I figured out pretty fast, but right. I didn't know going in. Sure. Right. So all of a sudden, this relationship that you're vulnerable to and dependent on becomes undependable. Um, hmm. That tr triggers a fear, and sometimes we can deal with the fear by our actions. You get afraid every time you cross the street. Just to illustrate this to you, in the city of Los Angeles, where do you think you're more in danger of being run over, in a crosswalk or jaywalking? Uh, jaywalking, I would say. It's actually, that's what I thought too, but it's f you're four times more likely to be run over in a crosswalk. What? Because if you think about it, <laughs> because when, people are crazy. When you're jaywalking, what are you thinking about? I'm thinking about I'm I'm playing Fogger. I'm I'm thinking about the cars and my exactly. speed and can I get past that car and how fast is it moving? Exactly. I'm calculating like a scientist. That's right. You're you know you're not where you're supposed to be. So the yes. street has your complete and undivided attention. Yes. You're hoping a car and particularly a cop car is uh, not in your near future. Because I'm afraid. Yes. <laughs> Whereas I could either die or have to pay 500 bucks. Whereas in Los Angeles. Many pedestrians feel they have the divine right, and I've seen people cross the street here without even looking up from their phones. Yeah, right. You just assume that everybody's stopping for you, wow. and occasionally that assumption gets shattered, literally. Wow. So uh, we're, we have fear all the time, whenever, and fear motivates us to do something. Um, it makes you sometimes skip foods you'd rather eat for foods you know you should eat because you're afraid if you don't take care of your health, your body won't sustain you. Yeah. Um, if I ask people, how many of you take better care of your teeth the week before you go to the dentist? Yes. I get lots of nervous <laughs> yeah. laughs. Right. And or the I, day. I, 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 say to people, I wait till yeah, the day. Exactly. Of, yeah. I ask, do you think your teeth and gums would appreciate if you could feel that fear uh, the, the other 51 weeks? And, of course, I get a guilty nod. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So fear motivates us in healthy ways. So that's one healthy response to fear. Okay. But sometimes... For example, the doctor says, I think, you, uh, I'm sorry, I have some bad news for you. You have cancer. Or your boss says, you know, we're having financial reversals. I may not be able to keep you. There's some fears where taking an action like trying to soothe your wife is impossible. Right, totally. So the, the, that's where the calling it fear made such a huge breakthrough for us. Because as long as you're calling it stress and thinking it's your job, your mate, the freeway, huh. all you can do is passively wait and complain. But when we called it fear, we realized, wait a minute, the place where fear lives in our brain is the same for every single mammal. Every mammal deals with fear because every mammal is worried about survival right. every day of their lives. And is that, an, is, help me with my neuroscience, is that yes. the amygdala? It's the amygdala, okay. exactly. Place about the size of an almond. In fact, the word amygdala means almond shape. Okay. Um, in the bottom of the midbrain, and it does with what most medical schools in the U.S. teaches the four F's of life. Food or appetite regulation, fight or flight, 
the alarm system in the yep. body, yep. and sex, if you'll pardon, since we're on a radio show. Oh, the other F. The other F. Okay, I was like, yes. sex does not start with an F. Yes, it does. Okay. <laughs> um, and so we share this alarm system, the fight-or-flight response, with every mammal, but we're the only ones that get stress disorders. Animals mm. in the wild don't get stress disorders because their brains are, relatively speaking, hardwired. So what they must do when they're afraid is built in. Mm. So when a deer gets frightened because it smells a foreign scent in one direction, what does it do? Runs the other way. Runs 30, 40 yards, assuming nothing's happened to it. Another mechanism in the brain called parasympathetic response shuts the whole fight or flight response off. The deer goes right back to grazing. Right. On and off dozens of times a day at no cost to the deer's health. That's what it was designed for. But it military. moves and then stops and looks as opposed to what I do, which is I feel stress about finances or stress about money and I just feel that exactly. it keeps me awake at night. and yes. I lay, Or I feel stress about like relationships that are not that I don't have a lot of control over, but the relationship is unwell or unhealthy. Yes. And I go, ah, oh, this person's mad at me. It. I can't fix it. And I just right. lay there with a stomach ache. Yes. Which is the opposite of the way the deer, the deer goes and then looks right. and goes, we're fine. Right. Yeah. So the bird flies away, the mouse burrows, the lion charges. So our team thought, wait a minute, if every other mammal on the planet has a built-in response to fear, hmm. we must have one too. And we couldn't figure it out till we started looking at some of the chimpanzee films because the chimpanzee emotional brain is very similar to ours. And then all of a sudden it became obvious. You mentioned you have a four-year-old. Yes. Is that as a boy or girl? Girl. Two girls, four two. and one. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So when the four-year-old has a nightmare, for example, what does she do? Yeah, she screams at the top of her lungs and comes and finds us. Exactly. Yeah. She, now, she runs to your bed. You or your wife holds her and says, it's yep. only a nightmare, as if that word means anything to a four-year-old. <laughs> right, right totally. What does your daughter do next? She falls asleep, falls right? Falls asleep. Probably right without even my daughter. Like, my wife will hold her, and she falls asleep right, right away. So chimps and humans are the only animal on the planet that, in response to fear, reach to another for support. Hmm. And there are over a hundred studies, Hank, that find the exact same thing in successful human beings that when they're afraid, they reach for support. Wow. Now, there's a third. From, from who? Does it matter who that person is? Like, yes. obviously, if I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, like a, a mama's boy from Ohio. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? So yeah. even as a 34 year old man, sometimes I'm like, I gotta, I gotta call my mom. You know, yes. like sometimes I call my mom, yes. but I obviously at a, at a professional level, I'm not calling my mom and explaining to her that my developer just bailed on me and this is going to cost me sure. another 50,000. And like all those things, like yes. my mom's not going to understand those. She'll just be like, you're the best. You can handle yes. it. Like who does it matter who I'm looking for? Like, I know yes. you mentioned a sometimes in your writings, even the, the Pixar guy. And then you also mentioned Jack Welch, a yes. guy at that level or if there's executives listening who are like, hey, I run a company. I'm not going to call my 80-year-old mother. Right. Who do we reach out to and how do we develop those kinds of relationships? That's a beautiful question. And the answer is that if you grew up in a family, if you were lucky enough to grow up with nurturing, loving parents mm -hmm. and neighbors that were kind and caring and teachers that were gifted and as supportive and coaches, then you become, if you will, gourmet at figuring out, given what's happening right mm -hmm. now, what, do, what kind of support do I need? Because there's times when we just need a mother's kind of reassurance. Yeah, right. Other times we need technical assistance. Sometimes we need both, huh. either from the same person or a different person. And that comes from the healthy family structure. Growing up with it, yeah. Gotcha. Let me tell you a story that will sound like it's got nothing to do with the topic. I'll try to make it brief, but I was living in Fresno, California, a smaller agricultural Fres city. Yes, we call it around here. Yeah, yeah. Fres, yes. Fres, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. Anyway, there, there, 
when the North overran South Vietnam, which we were supporting, they flew a lot of the Vietnamese people who we had, had worked for us out of Vietnam and flew them to cities like Fresno. Okay. And you'd see them on TV, or you'd see them on TV getting off the plane looking so grateful just to be alive and safe. You'd see them again on TV in their government housing looking so grateful for all the assistance they were getting. And then, Hank, a bizarre scene would occur in the grocery store, almost always at the bread counter. Mm. You'd see a Vietnamese family, mother, father, couple kids, the parents staring at hundreds of loaves of bread and weeping, sobbing. Became obvious later what was happening. They'd lived through a nightmare, fortunately, you and I can't even imagine, had been catapulted into this new world where from the time they get off the airplane, everything was foreign. Huh. From the language to the currency yeah, to crossing right. the street. And here they were staring at 200 varieties of bread, having no idea what they were looking wow. at, having lived on rice all their lives. Wow. Now, when you go to the bread counter, your brain instantly accesses a lifetime of memories right. of sourdough, wheat, rye, English muffins, bagels, croissants. And Wonder Bread, that sweet nectar of Wonder exactly. Bread. Yeah. And so you pull the type of bread and brand off the shelf. They had none of that inner wow. representation. And for some of these families, it was just the last straw of being overwhelmed. What does this have to do with your question? If you grew up with lots of nurturing from a rich social support of adults, then when you get upset, kind of a generic term for unhappiness, you know what kind of upset it is and what kind of help you need and where who you're likely to get yeah, it from. Yeah, right. So you become, if you will, more gourmet. If you I'm like a stress sommelier then <laughs> because I'm – I man, do I, I have all sorts of kinds of stress that people don't even, have never even heard of. Yes. And I just go, man, i got to call this guy that I met at a dinner party once uh -huh. and be like, what do you think I – I'm the what do you think I should do guy, right. which is really helpful – for me to hear that that comes from my sort of my family of origin because yes. I have two insanely awesome parents yes. who have – we fostered 36 kids and we adopted eight growing wow. up. And they had three of us biologically. So they are like – they're the parents of parents. Like yes. they are just sort of like amazing people. So that helps me understand if a person didn't have the fortune or the blessing to grow up with parents yes. like mine, how would they respond if they go, yeah, my dad was absentee or I didn't know him. Right. And my mom was stressed about her own life so I sort of had to self – Right self-raise or self-groom yes. myself, wh how would that person naturally respond to stress like that? Like who, how would they reach out? Well, if, unless they were reprogrammed, if you will, unless they, uh, unless they made some corrections or changes, what they're likely to do is choose the wrong kind of people to get involved with. Okay. Um, who are undependable because they have the same need for human contact as everybody else. But uh, often, no sense of, of uh, they don't ever want to become vulnerable to, again or dependent oh, on wow, anybody okay. the way they were on these, these undependable parents. And so unconsciously, because um, if you ask them what they want from a friend or a relationship, they can probably give you some decent answers. But they keep choosing unreliable, undependable people because that's what's familiar, hmm. even though it's painful. Right. Or they, they'll go to cigarettes. I've heard people say, cigarettes are my best friend. If hmm. I'm upset, I go to a cigarette. If I'm happy, I go to a cigarette. Right. And if you ask them, would you ever consider calling somebody or telling your spouse, they look at you like, that's the silliest idea I've ever heard of. Huh. They grew up without that reaching for support the way your four-year-old daughter takes for granted. And so they learned when life gets difficult, pull up the drawbridge, fill the moat with water, take care of it myself. Drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, food, they become our comfort. Because huh. all of them shut off the amygdala in yeah. a heartbeat. Right. It's just the cost is huge. Huh. So if you grew up without that nurturing, it's hard to even recognize that you need it because 
you've never had it. And in fact, whatever hap what happened when you went to somebody for support was very painful. Hmm. So you learn to never try that and again. And the people you relied on let you down. So why yes. rely on people? It's exactly. that sort of like learned behavior. Yes. And so the uh, a person like that, maybe who lives in a healthy space, that like a person like that that might be a healthy person, they may have figured out, hey, I, I'm going to need to, I need to build a community of people that I can exactly. call and go, it's a terrible day. This right. is a bad thing that happened or something went on and yes. I can expect that person to yes. support. Yes. Your daughter's growing up getting all this nurturing from her parents so when she goes out to find a friend or a sweetheart mm -hmm. or your boss, she's going to be looking for people that will give her that kind of support when she needs it because she knows what it feels like. Wow, now there's okay. a third piece of this just to complicate it because mm -hmm. one response to fear is to take an action. Like okay. you mentioned what yep. you do when you feel you maybe you could make it up to your wife. Yeah, make, totally. Make a uh, uh, amends. <laughs> My wife's going to hate this. She's like, you make me sound <laughs> awful. It's like, no, it's just a scenario. I just, uh, actually, hypothetically, guys. Actually, you made yourself sound like the villain. <laughs> yeah. You were trying yeah. hard to uh, yeah. because she felt like she was justified in being upset. So Almost always. I'm <laughs> yes. hoping she'll feel vindicated by this. <laughs> oh, good. The second response is to reach to others for support. Okay. What makes it complicated in human beings is because our brain is born so relatively undeveloped, we have a huge need to reach for support. The amygdala is almost completely developed, but unfortunately the brain has not had a chance to build in its own internal parent. Hmm. Now, we have chimpanzee films you're probably very glad not to see. They, were, they would be illegal done today where they could program what the chimp would do when it was afraid by what they exposed it to for six months. Oh, wow. Now, we now know that uh, this is what happens in humans that we, we build in our own internal parent, which is either a nurturing voice or a harsh voice. Now, I usually try to prove this to an audience by saying to the audience, uh, how many of you consider rejection painful? Everybody raises their hand For and sure. looks at each other saying, where did they find this guy? What I find painful, Bob, so you know how addicted I am yes. to this, I find painful the thought of rejection. Yes, yeah, <laughs> like exactly. I, I'm like, oh, that, that person will be mad at me. That is the pain. Sure. The, I, I, and it actually controls some of my even future behaviors. Oh, like, yeah. oh, I wouldn't say that or do that because then that person sure. will feel nasty about yeah. me. It's human nature. And if yeah. you're doing a sermon in front of 100 congregants and one person's on their phone, guess where your brain's yeah. going to that one I'm looking person. at that guy like, come on, guy. I'm giving my all right now. <laughs> even though 99 of these people are yeah. enthralled, right. your, your mind goes there. That's kind of human nature. But most of us have a harsh inner voice. So the way I try to convince an audience that that voice is there um, is I'll say, how many of you consider rejection painful? Everybody raises their hand. Right. I say, let me try to prove to you that's not possible. People look at each other like, well, all right, let's see. Now I say rejection comes in many, many forms, but romantic rejection is one form, correct? I get a lot of nodding mm -hmm. of yes. Mm -hmm. I say, well, let me, and even that has many forms. See if you would agree this is one. So I go up to a woman in the audience and I say, What's your name? She says, Sally. I say, suppose I go up to Sally and say, Sally, would you like to go out with me Saturday night? And Sally says, you know, Bob, I'd love to, but I'm busy flossing on Saturday night. Right. Yeah. People laugh. It's yeah. pretty silly. You're talking I, about my single life, by the way. That's, exactly. Uh, that was my whole life. too. The, so, the imaginary. I didn't, I never, I just <laughs> didn't talk to Sally. I know, Sally, you're busy. <laughs> so, and I would say that's rejection. That hurts. And everybody says, so far, so good. I say, well, let's see if, in fact, that's what happened. I went up to Sally, asked her out. She said she's busy and gave me that lame excuse. As I walked away, which of these two voices was likely to show up automatically in the center of my head? Boy, Bob, am I proud of you. Nice try. That was gutsy. <laughs> yeah. Could have been a little smoother. Next time you'll do better. Right. I'm so proud of you for trying. 
all the time the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, 300 voices in the center of my head singing the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah because <laughs> of my willingness to live at risk and pursue my dreams. Yes. Door number one or door number two? Boy, did you sound like a jerk. Who wants to go out with you? You're old, you're ugly, you're fat, nobody likes you anyway. Which is more likely, one or two? Yeah. Audience says two. So I say, so where was the pain? And Sally saying no, or the conversation in my head walking away? People agree in the conversation walking yeah, away. Yeah, right. And then I'll ask the follow-up question. But that one I have control over. I don't have control over what Sally says. Well, you have control over it in two ways. Once you have to realize it's there. Okay. Because remember, right. a few minutes ago, that audience thought the pain of rejection was in Sally. They didn't need this voice has been there all oh, of our right, lives. Right. We think it's us when it's really just software. The okay. second problem is once you're aware it's there, you then have to reprogram it because it won't reprogram on its own. Yeah, right. You know, it's like if, if I take you to the airport now and fly you from Los Angeles to Frankfurt, you get off the plane 14 hours later speaking what? English. English still, you haven't yeah, had right. enough time. Yeah, totally. But if we leave you in Frankfurt, six months from now you're speaking German, a year from now you're dreaming in it, yeah. the brain doesn't care. The advantage is when you go to order lunch in Frankfurt, English isn't going to help you, so you instantly have an incentive to reprogram yes, language. Okay. This harsh voice for most of us has been there all of our lives. We think it's us. Hmm. So it's hard to program it if you don't realize, A, it's software that's arbitrary. It just got passed along from 100 generations of your parents who never wished us any harm, but it got passed along the same way a Southern or a New England accent gets passed along. And secondly, that we can reprogram it with some effort. Not a lot. Yeah, because that harsh inner voice, I mean, I would, I've thought about this before, and I know you referenced this a little bit, is like most of us talk to ourselves in ways we wouldn't speak to a person we it's, didn't even. I, like I would never say the things out loud to a person. I thought about doing this for a talk or something where I, <laughs> where I make a person write down all the things they say to themselves, yes. and then I'm going to stand up and say it to a small child or yes. something. It's like. I would never say to a person that I even hated the stuff yes. I say to my own self about exactly. me being whatever, untalented, or you're a loser, or you're I'm like, imposter. That's yeah, like, oh, I'm a fa I'm a fraud. Oh, yes. no, everyone's going to know I'm not yes. talented or I suck. Like, those things, that voice sometimes feels like, I mean, the way I justify it. So it's weird that I am both beating myself up but feeling very justified going, yeah, but I'm just, I'm being self-aware, or that's reality, yes. or... Right, like, and I'm also making it the world's fault because it's communicating to me that I'm yes a loser or I'm whatever, like whatever those whatever yeah, the worst thoughts. That one guy thoughts. that's holding up his smartphone instead of yeah, right. jaw dropping. The one guy's like, word. see, I knew I wasn't good at this job. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I could yes. be in front of a huge stage internationally and be like, yes. yeah, I'm not any good at this. Sure. So those kinds of thoughts, you're saying we that that's just software. That's just in there. Yes. And how do we get to that point where we're in Frankfurt and we go, man, I got to reprogram this thing. Is it, does it start with the awareness of, I can't believe I just said that kind of stuff to myself? Bottom line, yes. Okay. If you, if, if you're, if what you're saying to yourself isn't, uh, to use your example, which was beautiful, if you wouldn't say that to a four-year-old boy or girl, why would you say it to yourself? Mm. And is that voice helping you or hurting you? Because sometimes people think without the harsh voice, they'd be home sitting in front of TV yeah, on right. welfare eating Oreos. Right. Um, and, I can, and I can handle the harsh voice because I'm a man. Right. You know, like I'm, I'm thinking this is me coaching myself. This right. is me. I'm Bobby Knighting myself, yes. you know. And we call that making a virtue out of necessity. We have this software that's running us. Wow, and the yeah. thinking brain is trying to make it seem like this is a virtue. Yeah. 
when in fact it's crippling us. Because all, you know, if you think about it, if you're taking a test and I'm standing over you screaming at you, does that inspire <laughs> you to greatness? Yeah, no, no, it just sends the amygdala soaring. Right, and I want to stab you with my number two exactly. pencil. Yeah. You know, the metaphor I like to use is a mom who's worked all day long at a very demanding job, picks her kid up from daycare, they're in the grocery store on the, to get some food before they go home, and mom's tired, the kid's tired, and they're in the checkout counter, and the ch kid reaches for a candy bar, and the mother kind of abruptly takes it out of his hands and put it back. So the mm -hmm. kid starts crying. Mother, out of her weariness and uncharacteristically, yells at the kid, stop crying. What does he do? Cries worse. Cries yeah. louder. Right, yeah. Now, you would think if somebody three times your size tells you to do something, you <laughs> yeah, would do it. Right, right. But is, this kid's used to a nurturing, warm, loving wow, mother who's yeah. turned from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. Oh, wow. And it just sends the amygdala soaring. And the kids, that's what happens to us all day long if we've got that harsh voice. So how do we, so the, uh, take me to that moment where I'm in Frankfurt. How do yes. I get myself on a plane to Frankfurt, so to speak? Like right now, even talking to you, I'm like, yeah, I, told, I have that harsh voice. I had that harsh voice this morning. Sure. Waking, I woke up to that voice in my head going, yes. how in the world are you going to sleep till 7 a.m., you yes. lazy? Like those yes. voices, right? How do I get my, how do I get myself, like, is, is this the kind of conversation, like the person listening in their Prius right now is yes. going, Man, I gotta reprogram this thing. Yes. Or does it take a life event? In your experience, does it take a life event, or does it take just a, the grit and decision to be like, man, I gotta reprogram this? It doesn't usually require some kind of life crisis. Okay. Um, in fact, it's best not to wait for those, those decade birthdays or yeah, whatever. Right. When you think, oh my God, right. I wish I da da da. Yeah. Then that voice is really screaming at us. Yeah. So it's ideally you look at. Um, what am I saying to myself during the day? And is this inspiring me to greatness? Is this what I would say to a, my best friend, my lover, my child? Um, if not, then you realize this is the human condition. This is how human beings operate. My favorite quote, Hank, is a Los Angeles Times interview with George Clooney, September 2012. Clooney's your favorite, is your favorite well, quote? No, the, yeah, because That's in, amazing. The, in this Los Angeles Times article, he starts talking about every time he goes on the set, he feels like his word, an imposter, oh, and wow. he has to try to win over the crew. Now, here's a man whose talent is enormous, right. good looks, fame, fortune, everything Top of the his rest whole of game. us would think is the epitome of success, but that doesn't stop the harsh voice. Wow, yeah. So, and in fact, usually the more successful we get, the louder the voice gets. Wow. You, go, you do a brilliant sermon. That right. harsh voice says, how are you going to top this next week? Yeah, right, exactly. So, there's no peace as long as you have this harsh voice. So the, the programming, it's actually relatively simple. The hard part is becoming aware that this voice is there and totally. it's not me. But George knows it's there. I believe so. so yeah, I couldn't I mean, tell from the interview. Oh, okay, right. But if he's saying, hey, I get it, I know I've got He's got a harsh voice was all I was Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So if he knows, and George, I'll send this to him. And and, tell, <laughs> and say, hey, George, we, got, we know you got this harsh voice. What do you tell George about how to make... How to, how to change the dynamic of that voice. It's actually simpler than you would think because okay. one of the, the weakness of the brain is it builds in that harsh voice. One of the interesting things about the brain is one of the main things it's used to decide what to store and use is repetition. Hmm. You notice you watch an hour of Law & Order TV show, they show you that same green lizard over yeah, and over right, again. Right. Those McDonald commercials are often 15 seconds long, but they show it to you the same one over and over and over again. Uh, even if you've never set foot in one of their restaurants, you can tell me three or four of their products just from the repetition. Sure, totally. So the good news is um, what you do is you the way you reprogram that voice 
is um, you try to you take whatever the circumstance is. It could be something as simple as you get angry and yell at cars and freeway traffic, sure. or you're impatient with your four-year-old. Yep. Um, or when your wife starts talking about her day, you you she catches you drifting off into another world because you're listening to that harsh voice, not her. For sure. Whatever the situation is that kind of captures it. And what you do is you uh, try to develop, this is the hard part, you write out what would I want to say to myself or what would I say to my four-year-old or my best friend if they were dealing with the same situation to change their emotional response to the situation. Okay, right. And then you ideally, once or twice a day, you say it out loud. And so... Because every time you talk, the amygdala goes on. You're trying to build new learning into the old brain. I'm if reprogramming you, the way that I think emotionally. Exactly. Okay. And with enough repetition, how much enough is varies from every brain, then um, the brain will build it in. If you want, I'll give you an example from my personal Sure, life. yeah, totally. So here's the voice because there are times when the work I do is very frustrating. Some of the patients are very demanding and difficult. Residents are not always receptive. Some of the faculty don't always get along. So here was the voice I would rehearse. Now, for some people, it's three or four words. Okay. I tend to be a little bit too verbose. So here's what I would practice out loud in the car, going to work and going homework. Hank, I have this amazing opportunity. I work in this small building in Santa Monica where we provide care for many poor people that otherwise would get no health care at all. And a group of young physicians training for one of the noblest branches of medicine, family practice, and a faculty that could double their income doing almost anything else in medicine. If we could provide a quality experience for these patients, if we can train these young doctors not only to be competent but compassionate, if we can learn to get along with each other as a faculty, we'll be a beacon to the world. So you notice the tone of voice also is yeah, nurturing right. and receptive. With enough practice You say that, that verbatim to yourself in the car, yes, on the drive. out loud. Out loud. Uh -huh. Do you Once do it to music, or do you give nope. yourself a soundtrack you, or you anything? Can, you, you just can. Okay. Yeah, again, if you're musically inclined, theme for Rocky or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. That's what I mean. Yeah, like up. literally. Like, like, Absolutely, okay. yeah. As many senses as you want. After a while, and again, the brain, like the golden arches, thinks that's where he or she wants me to go instead and replaces the English with the German, oh, wow. so to speak. Okay, yeah. It's just that simple. The hard part is, A, recognizing the, that harsh voice is not necessary, useful, or practical. Right. And, and don't, then, what was the word you used to describe? You virtue of necessity. We make, make a, a virtue, virtue out of necessity. necessity. Like, is, yeah, hey, that's part right. of... Because that even happens with people that worry. They think, my God, I'm th I better think of three ways this can go wrong. Because if I stop worrying, yeah. I'm going to get in trouble. Right. And about one out of 50 times, that turns out to be the case. Yeah, totally. And so it's a good thing I worried because it saved me from da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, totally. And that reinforces it for the next 49 times where that worry was a complete waste yeah, of energy. Yeah, totally. There's a phrase that I say a lot where I that, I that I wrote from my own personal life, but I've shared it with a lot of people. And I see it on people write quotes on it right. where I said, fear is most dangerous when it looks like wisdom. <laughs> because you Beautiful. go, see, I saved you all because I was so afraid. And yes. it's like, you're right, one out of a thousand times that works. Yes. Uh, and I, I've, what I find that practice really interesting is there, the, the more successful people that I keep meeting, and I'm, I, I just keep meeting really successful people who have similar stories where they go as cheesy or as like simple as this sounds. I look myself in the mirror before every 
audition, every meeting, every anything. Yes. And I go, you got this. You can, you know, like uh -huh. almost like that's like great. That, yeah, that yeah. crazy sort of, or the, the story that uh, I think there was a TED talk about the research of if a person stood like yes. Superman yeah, or had their arms out or they stood like Superman, they would perform better. Yes. There's some ways in which you're, it's realizing you're not telling your emotions necessarily like here I can do it or accessing anything different. You're just telling your brain to stop listening to this to this negative recourse you're, you're doing more than just saying stop it you're replacing it with something hmm. okay because if yeah, i tell yeah, you to yeah. stop doing something in some ways i'm even reinforcing it yeah right totally as opposed to try this oh that's good yeah so totally it's, it's, it's you can't stop speaking english we can teach you to speak german okay but we can't stop english we can replace <laughs> right. it with something wow that's a great so. example of stop english there's so many spiritual comp Con yes. connotations to that even yes. like for a person who wants to grow in their spiritual journey okay so i want to get to that i want to what i want to do because i love what you've just how you've reframed what fear is so would you suggest us and then i want to get to some practices like what can we do like what can our team do if people who are used to hearing me speak they're used to me explaining uh okay here are the six things to do or here's yes. three things i want you to do Beautiful. today i love the threes that's great but in that sense if to kind of wrap up what the the remastering or the reframing of fear should i use the word fear instead of stress anxiety depression uh tension uh nervousness when i'm feeling those things should i reframe it and say hey guys i'm f i'm afraid or well, should i say tell to my wife hey i'm scared you don't love me right now does that make sense <laughs> like how yes. should i reframe that in terms of language or when i hear it should i just reinterpret that in my mind as hey i'm being afraid that means something important is happening yeah. It's a tricky question because the culture still prefers the word stress, anxiety, sure. depression to fear. So um, if, you're if you're explaining to a congregation, here's God gave us fear yes. so that we would take care of ourselves, whether we're coming out of our cave as before we developed civilization right. or so that we would save crops for the winter because we don't know, we can't control the weather. So if God gave us fear as a gift. It's our job to honor and respect that gift and use it wisely. Uh, if if you have already got an agreement from other people that this word is what we were honoring ourselves, each other, and God, then it makes perfect sense. But if you're, for example, sitting down with your, uh, your board or sitting down with mm -hmm. a group of people that mm -hmm. um, you've never met before and you start talking about being scared, they may look at you kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, they're so, losing faith in you pretty quick. <laughs> exactly. Why are you afraid? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Totally. Whereas to say I've got some stresses in my in my congregation, that they can relate to. Okay, yeah, because it sounds less dramatic or less right. crazy. Okay, so give us give us some practices. If a, per a person listening is like, I'm ready, I'm ready to reprogram, I'm ready to do those things. Uh, uh, aside from things you've kind of already given us, are there are there three, four things that we could go? Here's how I could start mastering my fear, sure. mastering my stress. Step one is assume any time you're upset, there's a fear underneath. Okay. Is it true? I don't know. Is it useful? Very. And then you look to see, is the fear that I'm not worthwhile or the fear of losing control? Hmm. Um, the next step is to say, is there an action I can take? Because, again, uh, correcting my behavior with my wife or choosing a different kind of, of food for dinner, um, be careful crossing the street, is mm -hmm. there an action I can take? Um, the next is to... Um, the third step would be, is there someone I could ask for help from, someone who I have every reason to believe uh, will be nurturing and supportive? Right, right. Um, and then um, if it's too scary to actually re lean on others, because 
some of the people listening to this had some very difficult childhoods. So to jump ahead and start leaning on other people is too big a step. Okay. There's two small steps they can take. One is uh, to imagine they had a fairy godmother or an ideal friend or ideal lover, whichever safest. What could that person possibly say or do for me right now? So you're doing it as a fantasy mm-hmm. so that the brain's getting the idea this is possible. There's also a book that captures this that's a wonderful self-help book called Opening Up. Okay, cool. And it takes you through. It's written for the public, but it's written by a very prominent researcher named Penny Baker, P-E-N-N-E-B-A-K-E-R. And he takes you through some of the research on reaching for support. And his data suggests that if it's too scary, too big a step to lean on others, just journaling for 15 minutes a day, no more, about whatever feelings you had that day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it is, is enough to give you much of the physiological benefit. Because the part we skipped, Hank, is that um, one of the greatest ways you can reduce cholesterol is reaching for support. No one kidding. One of the best ways you can protect your health is reaching for support. No kidding. One of the kidding. best ways that you can lower your risk of almost any, of, more, of dying of almost any cause is reaching for support. And reaching for support, like, can I do that to my wife? Like, if I'm married, am I less likely to have high cholesterol? You can do, yes. Well, wow. yeah, if, if you're married and feel <laughs> that you can lean on your <laughs> okay, wife. I was going to say, because there's probably some married guys yes. out there with, like, skyrocketed cholesterol because yes. that marriage is the stressor, right? Right. Or, okay. th- or they grew up in a family where, again, leaning on mom or dad hmm. was dangerous. Yeah. So even if you've attracted this loving, caring, wonderfully uh, available spouse, this is the most dangerous person in the world to you because the emotional brain doesn't know it's 2016. This right. is a loving partner. It's treating all 7 billion people as if they're extensions of your parents. Right. Even though consciously you know that's, of course, not possible. Wow, okay. So those are two small steps before for people for whom the wounds of childhood are Because as a person is journaling or as a person is writing, they're actually calming that amygdalic response Yes. just by sharing as if they're reaching out, even though they're reaching out to a a book or to a... Or to a, a, a computer that makes it helps me understand because sometimes I right now I'm in the process of writing book proposals. I don't yes. I don't write books yet, so I'm not I'm not quite as as published. But I don't I tell people I'm not I don't write books. I write book proposals, yes, and then smart. once they sell, I'll write books. Yes. But uh, I find that like when I get lost in like the writing process, I look up from the computer not stressed or even tired. Yes. I look up after a three hour writing session and I'm like. I love everybody. And I, oh, this coffee. He says this coffee. And I'm like so nice to strangers. Yes. Like there is something. And I've been wondering what that was. Like, is that just because I'm in my sweet spot? I just thought I, this means that I love writing or that I feel accomplished or that I feel good about myself because yes. I'm on my way. But like, I'm so nice to my wife. I'm so good yeah. to my kids. I don't care about things that are burning down around me or the yes. e- stressy emails I'm responding going, you know, I care so much. Like I just in my optimal self right and i think that helps me understand that somewhere in that process i've i've calmed all of that anxiety i've calmed all of those fears on a biologic level that would be a perfect explanation on a spiritual level i'm as you say this i'm reminded of when i wrote my first book Mm -hmm. one of my spiritual teachers said who wrote your book i said i did he said who wrote your book i said i did he kept asking until i realized no, this is information that came to me through God. I was wow. blessed with the ability to yeah, right. uh, share it. But this is God's material, not mine. Wow, yeah. So 
I, the spiritual way of explaining it is you spend three hours with God. Yeah, right, exactly. And that you there had much more to and give. And he's a part of that creative process. Exactly. It's totally true. Yeah, yeah, it's totally true. It's a centering. So you can explain it biologically in terms of you were in your sweet spot. Right. The amygdala was quiet. The other way of explaining it is fear and excitement, anchor not similar. They're biologically the same. So the more you banish your fear, your excitement goes with it. Oh, no kidding. The only difference between fear and excitement, because remember, the amygdala is in the midbrain. The cortex is the thinking brain. So uh, when you you pay people money to turn on your amygdala, it's why you right. sit through Jurassic Park. It's sure. why you go to a roller coaster. My or skydive or mountain uh -huh. bike or I have a motorcycle, like those right. things, yeah. My favorite example of how the cortex decides if it's fear or excitement is the motion picture uh, a projector was invented by two brothers in Paris. They took a dozen of their friends, put them in a room, didn't tell them what was going to happen, um, turned off the lights. It was obviously a silent black and white movie of a right. train coming into the station. Oh, what do wow. you think these dozen people did? Oh, it freaked they out. They screamed and yeah. ran out of the room. There was no place in the cortex saying it's only a movie. Oh, wow. So you people, we pay people money to turn on our amygdala in a situation in which it's uh, the cortex says it's So safe. you're saying the difference, like uh, bio, at a biological level, right. my excitement of being on a motorcycle going up a mountain and maybe yes. down that same mountain is the same as when I'm like, I'm going to go bankrupt if this guy hates me or I'm going to lose this job or my wife's mad at me. They're the same biological experience. Yes. The difference is how my frontal cortex is interpreting. Exactly right. This is fun. This sucks. Yes. I'll give you another example. So can I train myself? This is a this is yeah. a, could be a major brain hack. When my wife is mad at me, and again, we're dogging my wife this. She's amazing. <laughs> and I'm only <laughs> using that. Well, as, we're assuming you've done something yeah, wrong. Trust me. I have. And I've put her through the ringer. When I've put her through the ringer and she's mad at me, yes. can I train my frontal cortex to see that as like a motorcycle ride down the hills of San Bernardino? <laughs> well, I suppose you could, but I'm not sure you'd even want to. Okay, okay. Uh, Having your wife upset with you, you know, one of my aunts once said to me, uh, be very good to your wife because God counts her tears. Oh, yeah. So okay, wow. there's probably <laughs> wow. no, you probably well, you're, was, she, was she Catholic? Because that's, <laughs> that's, some, that's some crazy, like, uh, don't don't make God mad Well, stuff. if you think about it, you, you want your wife to be happy. You yeah, absolutely. You want her to feel loved absolutely. and appreciated yes. and valued. So I'm not sure you'd want to be excited <laughs> yeah. as you see her right. upset, even if you think that somehow she's had a bad day with the kids and she's taking it out on you. Right. There's still no virtue in turning that into excitement. Okay, okay, yeah. So probably that's where the fear shows up in terms of what could I say now that's going to make it better? She needs my support. Right, totally. Um, but at a professional level, instead of being stressed yes. by this challenge or this thing that's happening, which are all, it, it's the landscape of doing anything yes. hard and meaningful in the world. Yes. You're going to hit things that are going to make you anxious or afraid or stressful or all those words yes. we use. Is it is it possible that people do this? And I've seen this in some people. Some people rise up and they go, "Oh man, isn't this exciting that right. this partner pulled out or that this this you know office is facing bankruptcy?" Yes. We're diving into these things. Is it a training of one's cortex to say that's an adventure as opposed to this is something to be afraid of and cower from? Yes, it's a training of the cortex and a training of that tabernacle choir voice, so to okay, speak. Okay, right. Okay. So that when something when something adverse is happening. Excitement may be too tall in order, but at least you've calmed the amygdala hmm. um, so that it's not overwhelming you. And then you have the frontal lobes back to do some problem solving. Okay. That makes so. sense. Because otherwise that's pulling back. So exactly. a person in who's listening to this loses their job next week. And that fires up all that amygdala response of yes. my life's over. My wife will leave me. My, yes. I, my kids are going to starve. Like uh, whatever those things. Or I'm a not, I'm, I've got to let go of this dream I had for my life. Those kinds of things. Yes. The 
a, a possible response that we might offer them is to take a deep breath and realize this may be that adventure or this may be an adventure. This may be something that could be exciting for a, a possible future as opposed to listening to that tape in your head that says, see, right. you are always a failure. They just figured it out. Yes. You know, those kinds of stories sure. that actually hold you back from reaching for more and expanding right. in your life. And the first step is to be compassionate with ourselves. That harsh voice got passed along again from a hundred generations. Our parents right. didn't wish it to us. So when it gets kicked up, that's not a sign of failure. It's just a sign that harsh voice is there. I, I need to work on it. Yeah, right. And so you start to write out what you'd say to somebody else. You start to think, all right, who can I ask for help in terms of helping me find other yep. employment? Um, what could I do to take care of myself right now? Try to calm the amygdala so you have the cortex back and can therefore do some constructive problem solving. Because the only time we're aware of this harsh voice is when something triggers it. Yes, right. Whether it's, again, a spouse being upset with us or losing a job or a cancer diagnosis. But to be aware that that harsh voice isn't necessary at that moment is a huge undertaking. I mean, it's, wow, it's yeah. huge to be able to do that. Okay, so and we're hitting the we're at a fifty-four minute mark, so I'm going to take a different direction with the close of this of this okay. interview part, which is, and then I want to I want to do a follow up one of these days or release with okay. one of these days to talk about your other book, okay. which I'm fascinated by, can, which what drew can me. Can I add one more thing about fear and excitement? Yeah, please, please. Okay. The other reason why fear and excitement are the same is um, that if, for example, when we close this interview, you turn on your phone and it's a fabulous piece of news, Hank, something incredibly wonderful. Yep. I got happened. some of that today. Yes. I got some really good news today. Wonderful. What do you want to do the minute you get that? I want to call five. I, te I literally text five different people exactly. and told them the very same news. You can't news. wait to tell your wife and your best friend. She's the first person I text. Second person. support goes on with fear and excitement because biologically they're the same. Oh, you would okay. think theoretically when you got good news, you'd want to find some chapel and thank God. But our first impulse, <coughs> eventually God gets thanked. Yes. Our right. first impulse is to call the person we're closest to and celebrate with them, expecting they're going to be happy right. for us. Right, totally. That reaching for support goes on with fear Okay, and then let me tell you what goes on in my head, and maybe this is that harsh voice. If I text all my friends good news, I contribute to their day, and uh -huh. I feel better. If I text them all bad news, I'm like a lame friend, and they're like, dude, I can't keep getting bad text messages from this dude. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, my gosh, like it feels like a four-alarm emergency. They're already dealing with stressors of their own. Yes. In my mind, it's like they don't want to hear this from me. Uh, plus, I'm an anxious guy anyways, and they know that. And right. most of the time, they just reply, and they just go, geez. Like, I made a comment to my friend on the yes. phone where I go, yeah, Mike said something that stressed me out. And my friend David goes, Hank, everything stresses you out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, my point is I was trying to talk to you about this thing. He brought up a good point. And yes. I, so my point is, like, how I feel like the bearer of great news, and I feel like I'm contributing yes. to my friend's days yeah. when I'm texting them good news. When I'm texting them bad news, I feel like a drag. I'm lame. Right. I'm like they're looking for help somewhere else. They've got their own mess to deal with. Yes. How do I? What? What? What am I listening to there? What's the dis disconnect? Well, it, uh, t telling everybody you know about bad news probably isn't all that useful. <laughs> okay. Uh, identifying one or two people who you either want nurturing from, or you okay. want suggestions from, or even your friend who says, "Hank, everything is <laughs> essentially yeah. that guy's trying to support you by saying." This this upset's not necessary. Yeah, Particularly okay. Particularly if the tone of voice is calm and caring. Yeah, he was. It was out yeah. of love for sure. Right. It was just. <laughs> right. It was also. It was also. Let me see if I can answer your question a different way. Suppose one of your best friends right now is going through a hard time. 
would you want him to be saying to himself, look, Hank's got a big job. He's got a wife and two kids, and he doesn't need to hear any of my problems. Oh, right. Is that what you want him no, to say? No, I would want him to call me. Yeah, exactly. for sure. For so, sure. again, calling everybody is probably a, a, not appropriate, but to have one or two people who, when you're upset, you know you can lean on. Yeah. Even if you don't lean on them, what we call that in psychology is connectedness. Because mm. you can have 50 friends, but you don't want to call any of them because you don't want to bother them. That's not friendship in the way that we're talking about it biologically. Yes. Connectedness means, it's like Robert Frost said it beautifully when he said, home is a place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. <laughs> and do you have oh, people in the world where you know if yeah. you lost everything tomorrow, I could sleep on their couch, you. yeah. That's what we're talking about with connectedness. People who you know know you. They right. know who Hank is. They accept and love you for who you are. And if you needed something that you really needed, they would be there for you. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Okay, then. Then so, I'm sorry, you wanted to change. Topics. Yeah, no, I want to just I want to just conclude this fear conversation, um, and sort of and bring it and circle it back to, in your experience, and I know you're a spiritual man as well. Yes. What, where do you feel like God comes into the conversation when a person is wrestling with fear? Most of our conversation and even all this research that's available talks about what's happening biologically and psycholo yes. psycholo psychologically as well as neurologically going on while fear is happening. Yes. For the scriptures to be so full of words around fear, for the two words, that, the two words in the scriptures that come together most often are the words fear not, uh -huh. most repeated in the scriptures. Yes. That God is communicating to us over and over that our fear is not something to move forward. Jesus even saying in Matthew, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Yes. How does, how, how does fear engage in that spiritual conversation in the sense that all these practices are really practical and neurological? What is the spiritual response to fear? Um, there's a, that's a great question. There's a couple answers. One is, is to recognize that... Um, Fear, fear and worry are very different. Fear is the mm -hmm. body's response to any kind of threat. Worry is where you're imagining something that hasn't happened yet. Mm. And one of my spiritual teachers said, worry is a form of atheism. Um, oh, wow. So if when fear shows up, because again, God gave us fear. So right. when fear shows up, if you feel God's presence, if you feel God's support, if prayer is part of your reaching for support, right. then you are at a very high level of spiritual trust in God. Oh, wow. So, so that can be a part of even one of the takeaways is like oh, it's yeah. not just journaling, but even things like prayer journalings or taking a moment going, I'm yes. feeling afraid. And I take that moment, that spiritual moment of practice, whether for my Catholic friends, that's the rosary or for yes. others, that's in our father. Or that might just be a moment where you just pause in meditation yes. and go, hey, God, is this any of this real? Right. So and, and again, every spiritual person I know and the ones I've read, like Mother Teresa, they all had their spiritual doubts. None of us have a perfect relationship mm. with God. Um, so it, it isn't that if you love God and know God loves you that your life is free. Right. Because there's moments we get angry at God and moments we doubt God and God forgives all that. Right. But do you see God as a loving presence in your life or is God, by coincidence, as harsh and unforgiving yes. as the parents who may have raised you? Right. Um, so if you have a loving God in your heart and you find your church community or... Uh, your prayer, a source of comfort, you're way ahead of the game. Hmm. Wow, that's beautiful. Do you think, so God gave us fear, but don't you think worry, worry is just imagined fear? Is yes, that kind of the idea? Exactly. It's a perfect way to put it. Then. So if God gave us fear and puts it into our system like that, when he describes that in the scriptures, and this would be so fascinating to hear your answer on this, when it says the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of God, 
Uh, what do you think that interaction is? What relationship is that, that the fear, is the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom? You know, the, the honest answer, because my, my knowledge of spirituality is more personal than it is okay. scholarly. Sure. I would have to say I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> is there, could you pontificate, like even just playing around with, and this is, where I would, this is where I'll try to cross these wires, and you can tell me if I'm on the right track, that if fear as a whole is a taking, or is that the best response to it is the same as excitement, a taking yes. of that to a place where you feel comfort and support. Yes. That if fear is like this thing that we have, it's something that comes to us, right? Yes. It enters into our amygdala. It comes to us from some external thing. Yes. Worry is those external thoughts that then bring about fear that exists that's imagined. Yes. When God says that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, is that you're taking all of that fear and placing it on the only one who can calm all of them. I can take some fears to my wife, but really she can't, she can't solve my financial Right. questions she can calm me a little bit but she can't take it right. is it would it be accurate to say that neurologically and biologically as a spiritual person i could take my fear and i could take it to god whether that's in prayer or whether that's in physical practice of going hey of speaking it out loud hey god these are my fears right. and actually directing all of my fears towards god that my frontal cortex would then operate at such a high level right that i could then make wise and conscious choices because i've taken directed all my fear towards my spirituality, found comfort, and now I'm moving gotcha. in life without fear. That would be very credible. The other way of saying the same thing is that when the moment we become vulnerable on somebody, we also become afraid of losing them because hmm. we are vulnerable. That's hmm. the human condition. Yeah, totally. Um, if you went home to your spouse and she was upset with you because you said you'd call and you forgot right. or whatever. Happens a you, lot. And you were fearless then you wouldn't have the wisdom it takes to yeah, recognize. Yeah, okay, right. So the, once, we, once our love of God shows up, the love isn't enough to sustain any relationship huh. um, unless there's a fear of losing it, a fear of not honoring it, a fear of not respecting it, a fear of if when you go home and you and your wife greet each other, is there a fear that while my four-year-old daughter is watching this, she's learning everything she'll ever need yeah, to know right. about a man and a woman's right, relationship? Right, totally, yeah. So there's a fear that shows up because, and every time your daughter walks out the door to go to school, there's a fear because you love her, and how much can you protect her from the things that happen in the world? Yeah, that makes so sense. it doesn't say fear is the beginning from what you've said. I'm just pontificating. Yeah, the right. Fear the, the fear isn't was the beginning of the relationship with God. It's hmm. the beginning of the wisdom, you said. Well, yeah, um, right. So wisdom comes in part from the fear that I, don't, I know I don't know enough. I know I don't, I, I know wow, there's yeah. more left to do. So to walk in the door, just to bring it into uh, your family, to walk in the door with some fear that, am I walking in the door with a sense of joy and love? Am I giving my daughter the kind of greeting that yeah. I would want her to, to have from her spouse? Am I greeting my wife and I operating in a way? When, when I talk to my wife about my work, is my daughter's four-year-old brain hearing that I go out into a world of adventure and excitement yeah. and fulfillment and uh, efforting towards a larger purpose? Or does it look like it's World 7, Dad 3? Right. And my stories are filled with frustration and irritation. The fear of not passing along that harsh voice yep. um, is enough, is the beginning of, you could say is the beginning of wisdom. Wow, that's cool. So, again, I'm just, I'd never... You're doing pretty good okay. for not doing your, for not being scholarly. <laughs> that would nailed it. Okay, good. That is awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Mauer, I'm so grateful 
really for your book and for your writings and for the w effort that you bring into the world and for Thank your you. 70 years on this planet, uh, the 34-year-old me, I'm going to be a healthier 70-year-old. I'm probably going to live longer after reading your things and like even just opening up to some of the studies and some of the ways you've guided us in how to address and how to reshape and reform fear and the practices in which you've invited us into. I just, I can't thank you enough for your work and for how you're helping so many people with what you're doing. And um, the ladies and gentlemen who are listening, you're looking for a book called Mastering Fear by Robert Maurer. That's M-A-U-R-E-R. -E and you can find, what's your website and where can we find more information on you, Robert? The website's called scienceofexcellence.com. Awesome. Scienceofexcellence.com. He's new to Twitter. He's only got a few. What's your Twitter handle? The one you have that you don't. I can't remember. <laughs> How about Instagram? Do you, have, do you have Snapchat? We got a Snapchat. Okay. Well, we'll hook you up. We'll get you some Instagram, some Snapchat. I reach to you for help. Yeah, you re reach out for me to help. We'll at least get you a Twitter, and then I'll retweet you. All right. And uh, we'll get you squared away. Because you I also write for that. Psychology Today. You write a blog for Psychology yes. Today. Yes, I do. Um, so just Google Robert Maurer. You'll find a lot of um, materials on him. Look for his book, Mastering Fear. And Robert, thank you so much for being a part it's of a this. It's a blessing to talk with you. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Robert Maurer, or the Maurer as we will describe him. We are going to have him on again. We already have a time scheduled for us to sort of get together and put together some time to uh, dive into some other categories with him. But we are going to move on to our next segment, which is stuff on my desk. Things that you need to know about that we are up to. Things you need to know about that we are focusing on. A couple of things I want you to know about. July 12th. On July 12th, we are doing a show in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. We're at the Bootleg June, July, and August. We just had June, and it was amazing. You all probably heard that night. It was so fun and, like, so much art and poetry and beauty. July 12th. So on my desk, I have this piece of paper that lays out July 12th. I'm going to have some special guests that I can't tell you about right this very second because I don't have 100% confirmation on the second guest, but just know it's going to be awesome. We're going to have some guests July 12th, 8 p.m., doors at 7.30, Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. And because I'm focused on that thing, that is the only thing on my desk. It's July 12th at the Bootleg. So excited. Can't wait to have you. Also, the other thing I have here on my desk is the Mastering Fear book by Dr. Robert Maurer. Check it out. Uh, and he wrote another book that is really, really cool called One Small Step Can Change Your Life. So check out those two books, and that will give you kind of some more information on him and on what's upcoming. And I hope you go out there and live a typically hazardous 